Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. On August 2, 1903, eight-year-old Tony Menino entered a candy shop in Brooklyn, New York. He didn't stay long. Tony carefully selected several sweets. The shopkeeper wrapped them up for him in a brown paper bag. Then Tony thanked the man and left. Outside, Tony met 18-year-old Angelo Kukotza, who worked for his father and was charged with looking after Tony. The shopkeeper watched through the window as the two boys disappeared down an alley. He didn't know it at the time, but he was witnessing a kidnapping. Sometime after Tony left with Angelo, he vanished. Tony's father, a wealthy contractor named Vincenzo Manino, scoured the borough for Tony. He brought Angelo to the police, where the teenager admitted to procuring the boy for a group of abductors. Though he gave up the kidnappers' names, the police couldn't find them or Tony. Amid the search, Vincenzo received a terrifying letter. In it, the writers informed him that they had his son. They reportedly demanded that he paid them $50,000, the equivalent to over $1.45 million today. The letter claimed that the power to free Tony lay in Vincenzo's hands. If he didn't pay, then Tony would die. Tony was the latest victim of a devilish syndicate that used fear, violence, and ransom to steal from hardworking Italian-Americans. The letter bore a terrifying signature, familiar throughout Little Italy and Brooklyn, a single ominous black hand. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on La Mano Nera, also known as the Black Hand an Italian criminal society that specialized in kidnappings, bombings, beatings, and murders to extort vulnerable immigrants in America. This week, we'll outline the rise of the Black Hand and their reign of terror. At the turn of the 20th century, the Black Hand tormented Italian communities across the United States. We'll also meet the one man who stood in their way, NYPD officer Joe Petrozino a.k.a. the Italian Sherlock Holmes. Next week, we'll dive into the struggle between the Black Hand and Officer Petrozino's Italian squad. When Petrozino discovered that the Black Hand had previously committed crimes in Italy, he traveled to his homeland to stem the tide with deadly results. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
At the turn of the 20th century, a shadow hung over New York City's Little Italy. Covering roughly 30 city blocks, the tiny neighborhood was only about one-tenth of a square mile. But residents of the small community locked their tenement windows and doors tight. Children peeked out from behind drawn curtains, forbidden to play with their friends in the streets. Men patrolled with shotguns, their eyes peeled for movement in the shadows. Occasionally, the people passed the charred remains of a firebombed restaurant or shop, the front window blown out from the force of the blast. Inside, soot-blackened goods still lined the remaining shelves. It was a neighborhood at war, and with no help from the authorities, the citizens of Little Italy were losing. Before long, the Society of the Black Hand would control them all. At the turn of the century, New York was rife with street gangs. In immigrant neighborhoods, Italian, Irish, Jewish, and Polish criminal groups committed theft and tried to intimidate residents. But the Black Hand was much more than a simple street gang. It was a loose association of criminal groups controlling different territories, and each group used similar tactics, policies, and rituals. They even shared information on potential targets. Like the Mafia, the Black Hand was organized, sophisticated, and deadly. We don't know when the group was first formed, due to a lack of records from the time but it most likely began operating around 1900. The Black Hand was a vampire feeding on the Italian-American working class. To join its shadowy ranks, you didn't simply begin writing threatening letters. Instead, you had to get an invite to a picciotto. It's a word that translates to young man in English, but in the parlance of the Black Hand, it has a different meaning. According to a 1908 newspaper article, it's the name of their sinister, ritualistic indoctrination ceremony, which means that, by at least 1908, every new member had to undergo the same bloody initiation. You walk up to an empty warehouse on the edge of the East River late at night. It's the first in a row of identical buildings, all desolate. You slow as you approach, trying to make sure it's the right one. You've never been here before, but the man claiming to represent the Black Hand gave you precise directions. When you're satisfied that you've found the correct warehouse, you step forward to knock on the door. It swings inward. A familiar man stands in the doorway, a laborer you've spotted in your neighborhood before. He asks who you are. You confidently give him your name and tell him that you've come for the Pichotto. The laborer nods and steps back gesturing for you to come inside. You're hardly through the door before he stops you with a hand on your chest. He says, no weapons, then points to a corner of the room. Stiletto knives, blackjacks, and pistols are piled high on the brick floor. He says, put them there. You walk over and place your small pocket knife in the pile, the only weapon you have on you. Satisfied, the laborer points you through another, smaller door at the back of the entryway. The next room is some sort of common area. Electric lights might attract unwanted attention from nosy policemen, so candles burn low on tables and windowsills. Looking around, you recognize seven or eight men, merchants, shopkeepers, laborers, and friends from your neighborhood. One of them, an Elizabeth Street grocer, stands up when you close the door behind you. He's the leader of this particular Black Hand chapter. 
Now that you're here, the Pichotto can begin. He tells you and the other assembled men to link your arms together and form a circle at the center of the room. You do so. The leader clears his throat, then speaks. He announces that the center of the circle is an abyss in which everything spoken is to be forever buried. The implication is clear. Nothing that happens at the Pichotto can leave this room. The leader speaks in a language you don't quite understand. At first, you think it's an unfamiliar Italian dialect, but you can't translate any of the words. The leader chants rhythmically, saying a ritual blessing over the gathering. When he finishes, all the men turn to each other, kissing each other first on one cheek, then the other. The leader produces five long, thin knives from a pouch at his waist. He arranges them in a circle so that their blades thrust outward like a five-pointed star. He pulls out a crisp white handkerchief and lays it over the daggers. Their five sharp points jut out from beneath the cloth, glittering in the candlelight. Finally, the leader pulls several wooden matchsticks from his pocket, one for each black hander. He snaps the head off of one of the matches, then hides them. He presents the bottom end to each man in turn, having them draw lots. A man to your immediate right, a shoe shiner from the neighborhood, pulls the short match. He nods, sighing, and rolls up his sleeve to the elbow. Again, the leader chants a ritual incantation. He seizes a dagger from the five on the floor and brings it to rest on the shoe shiner's forearm. He slices across the flesh, producing a thin red ribbon of blood. The man turns to you, offering his dripping arm, and says, If you wish to become a Kameristo, a full member of the Society of the Black Hand, you must drink. You close your eyes and do as you're told, tasting blood from the gash on his outstretched arm. As your lips meet skin, a cheer erupts from all around you. When you raise your head again, it is as a Kame Risto, a fully-fledged member of the Black Hand. You wipe blood from your mouth as the men inside the warehouse shake your hand and clap you on the shoulder. Now you can learn their secrets. Through most of its existence, the Black Hand was divided into small local groups. These chapters terrorized different areas, but they all followed the same methods. To illustrate the Black Hand's modus operandi, let's follow the case of a fictional victim we'll call Giuseppe. Giuseppe was a moderately wealthy grocer who lived in Little Italy with his wife and five children. If the Black Hand decided to target Giuseppe, they would begin by dropping a letter in his mailbox. The author might threaten to kidnap Giuseppe's children, bomb his grocery store, or even kill him outright. To avoid this fate, Giuseppe only had to pay them a fee. But although Giuseppe was a successful merchant, this fee was a small fortune for him. The letter instructed Giuseppe to bring his ransom to a particular location at a specific time. But when he arrived, no one was there. A second letter came the next day. In it, the Black Hand detailed precisely where Giuseppe had gone the night before, down to the route he took and the people he passed on the street. This was meant to intimidate him, and let Giuseppe know the Black Hand was watching. The second note encouraged Giuseppe to contact a mutual friend. This friend, someone he knew personally, was actually an associate of the Black Hand. The friend offered to negotiate on Giuseppe's behalf. 
They said that instead of the $30,000 the Black Hand demanded, Giuseppe could pay $5,000. The friend positioned themselves as a sympathetic middleman, not a member of the criminal group. Many victims like Giuseppe felt they had to pay. If they went to the police, the Black Hand might retaliate. If they refused to cooperate, they could lose their jobs, their homes, even their lives. For the first few years of the Black Hand's reign of terror, it operated entirely under the radar of law enforcement. The Italians, fearful for their lives, didn't report the scourge on Mulberry Street. And the police didn't care to help anyway. And maybe it would have stayed that way until the newspapers got wind of a man named Niccolo Capiello's story of intimidation and extortion. His experiences rocketed the Black Hand to fame and empowered them. Up next, the Black Hand Society is thrust into the spotlight. Hi, it's Greg. Have you heard the newest Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In the early 1900s, an extortion ring known as the Black Hand stalked the street corners and alleyways of Brooklyn and Manhattan's Little Italy. But despite the threat of this criminal society, it remained largely in the dark. The information we have about the Black Hand's Picciotti and extortion methods comes from news reports from 1908. But the society had most likely been operating since 1900, if not before. To explain their rise to power, we have to dive deeper into immigration at the turn of the century. The Black Hand story is inextricably entwined with that of Italians in America, especially in New York City. In 1875, Italians were a minuscule percentage of the immigrants that traveled to the United States. According to the 1880 census, over 6.6 million foreign-born people lived in the country. But only 44,000 Italians made their homes in America, not even 1% of the total number of immigrants. But a significant shift happened in the 1880s. Italians, especially those from the impoverished towns of southern Italy, streamed into eastern U.S. cities. They fled poverty and hunger, hoping to find a better life in the United States. Unlike earlier migrants, these southern Italians didn't try to assimilate into American culture. Rather, they carved out a small piece of Italy on American shores by settling in enclaves with their fellow countrymen. In New York City, many Italians moved into southern Manhattan tenements already occupied by Irish immigrant families. 
Tenements were low-rent apartment buildings notorious for poor maintenance. Often, they had reputations as slums. Due to pre-existing tensions between the immigrant groups, when Italians moved into a building, Irish families would often move out. Americans resented the Southern Italians and Sicilians, despite most of them being descendants of immigrants themselves. They didn't like that the Italians kept many aspects of their home culture, like their cuisine and languages. Perhaps many Italian immigrants did so because they intended to return to their home country. Nearly half eventually sailed back to Italy. It probably didn't help that Italians, after generations of government corruption and mafia influence in their homeland, often didn't trust authorities. And unlike other immigrant groups, Italians tended to see themselves as their ethnicity first, rather than as Americans. According to historian Terry Galway, nearly 90% of Irish immigrants became American citizens at the turn of the century. At the same time, fewer than half of all Italian immigrants were citizens. Anti-Italian sentiment permeated New York City. Irish, Jewish, and German-Americans made up the New York Police Department, and many of them wouldn't investigate crimes in Italian neighborhoods. They erroneously claimed that Italians were naturally violent and thuggish. They assumed that all Italians were somehow involved with organized crime, like the Mafia, and that it wasn't worth the manpower to police them. In this atmosphere, a criminal group saw its chance. For the first few years of the 1900s, the Black Hand operated almost with impunity in New York. We don't actually know precisely when they first started extorting Italians, because there are so few records, but we do know that in 1903, their crimes first came to light when newspapers reported on a Black Hand victim, contractor Niccolo Capiello. In August 1903, Capiello became the latest victim of the Black Hand's extortion schemes. He received a letter at his Brooklyn home, threatening to blow up his house if he didn't meet its author at their stated address. It was signed La Mano Nera, Italian for the Black Hand. Someone had drawn ominous symbols across the bottom, a dagger, a black cross, a skull and crossbones. Capiello thought nothing of it. Living in Brooklyn, he hadn't heard of the Black Hand. The underground society probably mostly targeted Italians residing in Manhattan's Little Italy. He threw the letter out. Capiello received a second letter two days later. Again, he ignored it. But then, a knock came at his door. Two figures stood outside. One was his neighbor, a man Capiello had known for years. We don't have a record of his name, so we'll refer to him as Roberto. The other was a stranger, but he inexplicably struck fear in Capiello's heart. Roberto asked to come in. Once inside, he explained that both he and the strange man were representatives of the Society of the Black Hand. His throat growing tight, Capiello asked what they wanted. Roberto told him some chilling news. The Black Hand had put a bounty on his head. Unless he paid them $10,000, they'd murder him and his whole family. Capiello's breath caught in his chest. He'd found success in America, but he didn't have that kind of cash. For perspective, $10,000 shakes out to almost $300,000 today. But Roberto said he'd negotiated with a black hand on behalf of his friend Capiello. If the contractor paid $1,000 now, then the whole thing would go away. They were using a hardball negotiation tactic. 
they asked for an egregious, impossible sum outright to shock Capiello into agreeing to their comparatively reasonable demand. Even so, Capiello refused to pay. Roberto and the evil-looking man left, empty-handed. But it wasn't his last run-in with the black hand. Over the next week, men appeared outside of his house, all accompanied by the terrifying stranger. Some, like Roberto, were neighbors or acquaintances. Some were even close friends. They all said the same thing. Pay $1,000 and the threats would stop. Secret criminal societies were nothing new to southern Italians. Many had fled the grip of the Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian mafia, who grew rich, defrauding merchants and workers. Similar to the mafia, targets of the Black Hand didn't know who to trust. They feared that reporting the threats to the police would lead to violence. They couldn't ask friends for help, as they didn't know who was or wasn't a member of the Black Hand. Many times, the victims had no recourse but to pay. And that's exactly what Capiello did. Afraid for his life, Capiello caved and handed over $1,000 cash. But despite what the men had said, that wasn't the end of it. Within days, the stranger was back at his door. This time, he asked for $3,000. As an ultimatum, the Black Hand threatened to kill his family. Capiello didn't sleep for weeks. He greeted every knock on his door with a revolver in hand. His wife and children didn't leave the house for fear of being killed in the street. Finally, Capiello saw no other option. He had to act. Though he didn't trust them, he went to the Brooklyn police and reported the situation. The cops tracked down the Black Hand group that terrorized Capiello. They arrested five men on charges of extortion, convicted them, and sent them to jail. During the trial, a reporter at the New York Herald caught wind of the story. The Herald often capitalized on salacious crime stories to sell papers, and a shadowy society sending threatening letters was perfect for their front page. It was one of many newspapers that practiced yellow journalism, using dramatized, sensational stories to sell editions. Other newspapers, including Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, ran the story as well. The public ate it up, fascinated by the nefarious criminal syndicate. Almost overnight, the Black Hand Society had gone from a quiet scam to a national sensation. And rather than refute the press coverage, the Black Hand seemed to welcome it. Perhaps they saw it as free advertising. With their names on New Yorkers' lips, they recruited more agents and expanded their empire. Soon enough, every major city had its own satellite group of the Black Hand. But the newspapers didn't know just how insidiously the Black Hand operated. Even in 1903, the organization was setting themselves up for long-term, widespread control. The group operated like a shadow state, a para-government that surveilled their citizens. Long before the days of the internet and social media, the Black Hand understood how important collecting personal data could be. In New York City, Black Handers gathered information by infiltrating local Italian banks. Members got jobs as tellers and took note of the wealthiest account holders. Using their access, these black-handers could learn the names, addresses, and business information of potential extortion targets. Banking wasn't the only form of reconnaissance. According to author Stephen Talty, 
Other black-handers hung around social scenes at barbershops, restaurants, and bars. They'd eavesdrop to find out who'd just gotten married, who had a relative die, or who sold property back in Italy. They'd look for anyone who'd recently come into money. The Society collected information on almost all the Italian-Americans in New York City. The different chapters traded information, creating an insidious data network in the backstreets of the Big Apple. According to one Italian newspaper editor's estimate, approximately 95% of all the Italian business owners in New York City had been or were currently paying protection money to the Black Hand. The deadly society ruled Little Italy through fear and kept its victims silent through intimidation. In 1903 alone, the Black Hand burned down a Brooklyn candy shop with the owner, Ernest Curci, inside. They detonated a bomb on 151st Street. They kidnapped multiple children from Italian families. But one man fought for justice against the Black Hand. He was the first Italian-American detective sergeant in United States history, Joe Petrozino, the Italian Sherlock Holmes. And he wouldn't rest until he took the organization down. Up next, Joe Petrozino is on the case. Now, back to the story. In 1903, the Black Hand was an epidemic in Italian-American enclaves. And even though their evil deeds were splashed across newspapers nationwide, authorities like the NYPD didn't care enough to stop it. Except for one man. Giuseppe Joe Petrozino was born in Salerno, Italy in 1860. At 13, he emigrated to New York City. He came to Manhattan just before the first great migration of Italian immigrants. From an early age, Joe, as he liked to be called, was brutally aware of how others perceived him as an Italian immigrant. He recalled daily street fights between the Irish and Italian schoolchildren in Little Italy. Adults would lean out of windows, shouting encouragement to the children on each side. Discrimination followed him to early adulthood, when Joe set his sights on becoming a cop. At the time, the majority of Manhattan police were Irish. In the early 1800s, a political machine called Tammany Hall influenced practically all municipal decisions and appointments in the city. Tammany Hall courted Irish, German, Jewish, and other immigrants by promising political favors. They used the police force as a tool. In return for votes, Tammany would increase police presence in a neighborhood to keep crime down. They even recruited new cops from communities that voted for them. However, Tammany had a different attitude towards Italian immigrants. Since they often did not become citizens, they had no voting power. Since they couldn't vote, they were worthless to Tammany. So the machine had no interest in giving Italians political positions, jobs as police, or other favors. The lack of voting ability also disincentivized Tammany-appointed police commissioners. The NYPD didn't take the Black Hand's operations seriously because the crimes were mostly against non-voting Italians. Joe Petrozino saw the devastation that came from an uncaring and absent police force. Many families went bankrupt, lost their businesses, or even their lives to criminals. Joe believed that if the law wouldn't work for Italians, then Italians must become the law. So, in 1883, 23-year-old Joe Petrozino became one of the first Italian police officers in the NYPD. 
From the start, Joe thought outside the box to combat crime. He mastered English and several Italian dialects to better communicate with his constituents. He refused to take bribes, which was unusual in a city marked by corruption. Joe was uniquely suited to his work in law enforcement. He had an eidetic memory and could recall any detail about a crime or criminal instantly. And he also often utilized disguises in his work. When undercover outside Little Italy, he used American prejudices to his advantage. Many people wouldn't look twice at an Italian worker or a recent immigrant. More than once, Joe walked down the street in disguise and wasn't recognized by the police from his own precinct. Though Joe may have had noble intentions, some people in Little Italy didn't see it that way. His neighbors hurled insults at him. When they saw him coming, they'd shout, fresh parsley for sale, to warn criminals to hide. It was a play on Joe's name. In some Italian dialects, the word for parsley was Petrozino. Many people in the neighborhood believed Joe had sold his loyalty to their oppressors. Almost as soon as he joined the force, he received death threats. They continued for the rest of his life. He even moved to an Irish neighborhood for safety. But even as some people derided Joe as a traitor, others felt proud there was finally an Italian on the force. They hoped Joe would combat not only criminals, but also anti-Italian prejudice. By 1895, Joe had proved himself a brilliant and capable policeman. On July 20th, he became the first Italian detective sergeant in the United States. And his reputation only grew from there. Joe became somewhat of a folk hero protecting the citizens of Little Italy from crime and corruption. According to multiple journalists, Joe had a remarkable power over the city's petty criminals. In one instance, he walked into a tavern, intent on arresting a man. Rather than pulling out his badge or gun, Joe simply introduced himself. Hearing the words, Joe Petrozino, the man stood up and surrendered immediately. We might have to take this particular story with a grain of salt. As we mentioned before, the New York City papers did tend to sensationalize news in the name of circulation. Nonetheless, the American press celebrated Petrozino, inflating him into a larger-than-life figure. They reported on the detective's love of opera and penchant for the violin, his impressive arrests, and his legendary fortitude. One New York Sun journalist said he was a big, strapping man with flashing, coal-black eyes and a melodious voice, quick-witted and resourceful. Another article from the same paper stated, If he talked music to you, he would tell you that Lucia was his favorite, that Rigoletto held second place. This had an interesting effect on the American perception of Italian immigrants. Lauded in the papers, Joe Petrozino became the model for a quote-unquote good Italian. The news divided immigrants into Italian saviors, like Joe, and Italian killers, like the Black Hand. But this dichotomy left the vast majority of Italians behind. The Italian doctors, professors, laborers, and honest merchants who lived all across America ceased to exist. They were ordinary people, neither saviors nor killers. By codifying an entire ethnic group as only saviors and killers, it became much easier to argue that America could keep the so-called good Italians, namely Petrozino, and kick the rest out. While an ideological battle played out in the headlines, 
Joe Petrozino fought a physical war on New York streets. In 1903, the detective was aware of the Black Hand's operations in Little Italy. After a member kidnapped Tony Menino on August 2, 1903, his father, Vincenzo, reported the crime to the New York police. Joe Petrozino jumped on the case. Joe believed that if victims of the Black Hand continued to pay the organization, it would never stop. Each dollar they extorted made the society stronger and attracted new members. He ordered the Menino family to keep their money and let the police handle finding their son. He reasoned that if he could find the Black Hand members that had Tony, he could arrest the entire group. In response to the NYPD involvement, the Black Hand sent a letter to the Brooklyn police station. It read, Stop chasing us or be killed. Undeterred by the society's threats, Joe followed up on various leads across the state. He chased down tips on young Italian boys who matched Tony's description, traveling as far as New Jersey. But before he could close in on the Black Hand, the search ended. On August 19, 1903, Vincenzo Manino's cousin walked through Little Italy at midnight. At the end of a side street, he saw the shadowy silhouette of a small child. The cousin ran towards the figure. As he drew closer, he made out the young boy's features in the dim light. It was Tony Manino, scared but unharmed. The Maninos had ignored Joe Petrozino's advice and paid a portion of the Black Hand's ransom, giving the society an undisclosed amount for the return of their son. With Tony safely back in hand, the Maninos refused to cooperate with Joe's investigation. They'd weighed their options and ultimately decided that the Black Hand was stronger than the NYPD. Joe was furious. He didn't have the resources he needed to track down a secret criminal empire. Men arrived at his office nearly every day, a black hand letter in their fists. Bombs destroyed shops and businesses across Brooklyn and Manhattan. And each time a family paid their ransom, the black hand grew bolder and more powerful. To defeat the beast, Petrozino needed an army. On September 14, 1904, the NYPD responded to Joe's demands by establishing the first-ever task force to take on the Black Hand. The group, headed by Petrozino, were masters of disguise, fluent in Italian, and brilliant, innovative detectives. The papers referred to them as the Italian Squad, or the Mysterious Six. The Italian Squad was responsible for all the Italian citizens of New York. In 1904, this meant that the six detectives had to look after half a million people. And the NYPD wasn't actively trying to help them. Joe's company had no operations budget. At first, they didn't even have an office. They met at Joe's apartment. But the Italian Squad was the only organized rebellion against the tyranny of the Black Hand. The mysterious six were ready to infiltrate, investigate, and prosecute the Black Hand, or die trying. But the Sinister Society had already established roots across America. With such an extensive reach, the Black Hand felt powerful enough to forego the small-time protection rackets that had sustained it for its first few years. Now they set their sights higher on millionaires, celebrities, even the United States government.
Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with part two, where we follow the Italian squad's fight to conquer the Black Hand. For more information on the Black Hand, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Black Hand by Stephen Talty extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi again, it's Greg. Before I go, I wanted to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I can't recommend the show enough. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.